Yeah, well, the, uh, hang on. If I'm reading this right, thinking this right, it means that their value just on one of their holdings is worth more than what their market cap is. Yes. Hi, I'm Bruce News Editor Matt Kirkegaard and welcome to episode 410 of Bruce News Week recorded on Wednesday, the 15th of March 2023. We're going a little bit early this week. Uh, I'm about to jump on a plane to New Zealand um, to visit the hop harvest. So we're this is the news up until uh, late Wednesday afternoon. As I said, I'm Matt Kirkegaard and I'm joined today uh, exclusively by Ian Watson. So it's the, uh, we're down to two, Ian. Welcome back. Hey, Matt. Thank Thanks for rubbing it in that you're off to New Zealand. <laughs> well, it, 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 it's all work. I'm coming down with a cold. Um, so, you know, the last thing you feel like doing is uh, is travelling, but it's just what you do. But, uh, mate, we, we might get straight into the news because you're going to have a little bit of talking uh, <laughs> around this week. Um, and the, the first story occurred last Friday um, after we recorded last week's episode, Ballistic Beer Avoids Liquidation. Finally, um, after uh, about six weeks, um, we have some certainty around the situation with Ballistic Beer and it went into administration in January, but it has avoided liquidation as creditors have voted to accept a deed of company arrangement. Under the deed, sometimes known as a docker, uh, a consortium of new investors, including Catchment Brewing Company, has invested $850,000 to take a majority share in the business. As a result of that cash injection, Ballistic, which entered administration with debts of more than $5 million, including more than $2 million uh, owed to the Australian Tax Office, will be able to restructure um, and... Uh, hopefully trade on. Now, Ian, you were a creditor um, as, a, as a former employee. You were in a, a bit of a netherland uh, or netherworld. You had resigned, but you were still working for them when they went in. So you weren't a stood down or a, a em- employee technically, um, but you became a creditor. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Well, I, st- I still am a creditor because uh, I haven't received any dollars in the bank yet. Um, so I'm still still a creditor, but yeah, I, it went into um, administration with two days left to go on my quite lengthy notice period that I gave. Um, and during that process, when they were standing people down or terminating people, um, they said to me, "Would like you to stay on for the till Friday?" <laughs> it's like, well, naturally, sure. Um, uh, so, so I wasn't surprised by by that, but then was notified that yeah, um, I wouldn't be receiving my entitlements. Um, thingy what was owed to me the next week um which was quite a blow and um still hurts um at this moment in time because of the unique position you were in by having resigned and so not being a current employee you became a creditor and so you're not a priority creditor the way that the stood down um uh or retrenched employees are who will be paid first you become a creditor that supposedly will get up to 10 cents in the dollar um, under the administration i think that um so while i'm in a different scenario i think uh i believe that i still have to be paid out um right that but however what i'm yet to fully find out about so um there is uh, without wanting to give away details my employment contract um of course uh, wage what your full um income is is not necessarily 
what you are fully entitled to when you count into things like bonuses, etc. Um, yep. Which uh, I'm yet to be fully clear on that scenario there, but I should now receive um, my base entitlements, but not necessarily um, everything that's owed to me, although I believe I should, but um, that's what will have to be um, still to be discussed and I'm still to find out on. But yeah, I, I, I was kind of a different position, but there is still federal government guarantees um, that how, of how they have to treat me, um, but I wasn't an on-the-books employee any longer. But this, and, and to me, the reason I sort of dwelt on your particular case, and there's a little bit more we'll discuss about this, but you raised questions on behalf of other staff that highlighted the level of uncertainty and confusion and conflicting advice that staff were given, um, both by the administrator. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that because you received fair work um, advice that standing staff down wasn't legal. Yes, that's right. So uh, while these situations didn't affect me, you know, the staff were my friends. They were my um, my team. Um, so I, I'm wanting to make sure that they're looked after um, uh, and wanting to make sure that, you know, everything was right by by them and also wanting to understand everything um, a bit better about the entire situation. Uh, it, it's difficult for staff. So there is information out there, but in through my experience here, um, through having been through it, the information that's out there on the on the internet, the the information that you'd be given by um, administrators, etc., is not as complete and clear as I'd like it. Um, now, that's not to say there's any games or anything like that, but it's highly complicated because they're they're speaking to lay people about technical, legal, and accounting matters. That, that's that's exactly right. That's why it's that's why it's 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 difficult. Um, and it would be great. Um, maybe there was something we all missed, but there was a lot of people all looking for this information um, about ways that things could be explained clearer and what the legal positioning was of the staff. Uh, through that and uh, through checking through with the National Employment Standard, the Fair Work Commission, the Fair Work Ombudsman, and then multiple independent legal advice um, that was received by various staff members found out that the you actually can't stand staff down for that reason. Under Australian law, there is three reasons you can stand staff down without pay. Uh, through equipment failure, so a cyclone comes through and rips the roof off the, the, the building uh, or rips out the local power station so there's no power, um, so... You, you can't produce, um, so there is no work. You can stand people down then. You can stand people down through industrial action. So say the brew team goes on strike um, and in a couple of weeks' time the packaging team have no beer to pack, you can stand them down. Or you can stand them down uh, for by order of the government, essentially. So if the government directs the company to stop working, um, then you can you can stand staff down. Specifically, it states you can't stand staff down for economic reasons, or simply because you don't have enough work, um, or simply because you're not gonna you're not gonna make your widgets this week. You you can't stand staff down for for those reasons, and that's um, that that's a quite clear law. Uh, that I raised that um, in the credits meeting. Uh, many of the staff uh, uh, was. Less of the staff went to this creditors meeting. Many of them are actually simply feeling extremely worn down by the process, which is totally understandable. 
Mm. Um, so there was um, very few of us actually went in there that were were, were staff. Um, I raised that issue in there along with a number of other questions that have been given me by staff like I boarded up relating to other matters that just being inquisitive about how the new structure of the company was going to be so the viability of the business. Um, but I raised that issue around the, um, the stand down and back pay on that stand down and was told that um, they had received legal advice and that they were fine to do it. Um, which is against what, um, what, what, what Fair Work um, and what the National Employment Standard and what independent um, legal advice had had stated. Everyone was pretty clear. It was pretty unambiguous situation. So there's still ongoings into that to find out what what will happen with that because that's uh, now what we must be seven weeks or so since the staff were paid. Um, so that's a, a, a substantial amount of time to to go without the income that you're expecting come to you mm, and to just have absolutely. then nothing. Um, so things are ongoing from there. That's not to say that that's not going to be taken care of and um, and everyone will be will be brought back up to speed with these matters. But um, uh, at the moment, um, nothing's been completed. I, I haven't received any um, – yeah. I haven't received a single phone call uh, or, an, or anything to, to state where I'm at with it. Um, some staff um, – yeah, various things have happened on there. It's not right for me to comment on their individual situations, though. But mm. um, certainly there is still ongoing um, movement on what they are actually owed. Um, it was also noted – I noted in there that um, whilst in the first meeting redundancy, any staff members would be redundant would be upon the business and not upon the docker. Um, I was told in the second meeting that the, any redundancies were, were were in the docker, yet there was nothing mentioned about that in the docker at all. So there was concerns there. What was going to happen to those those staff? Well, that was I, I was given conflicting advice about that as well. And again, you know, from the day that Ballistic went into administration, you know, we were making inquiries and trying to establish the position, and yet never got consistent information to base an article on um, to to discuss these things. But even uh, having spoken to the administrator prior to the final resolution or the final docker vote that got up, my understanding was that the stood down staff that, you know, on one uh, set of advice were illegally stood down, but um, the stood down staff could be re-employed, in which case they would fall under the subsequent business structure um, with the responsibility taken up by the by the new owners effectively or the or, or the new business or they could be made redundant under the docker and it was so even when I was asking questions it was heavily caveated because it, it's almost like Heisenberg until a decision an election is made you can't give meaningful advice which is incredibly frustrating and it's incredibly confusing for somebody as an observer let alone people that are directly affected and having to pay their bills when they can't get clear ad ad advice absolutely yeah really quite confusing um and i, I think there is a, a case for position amongst ad administrators out there for a uh, hr type role to advise in um, almost probably have to be a semi-independent position, um, maybe outsourced, uh, someone to be able to advise staff on, uh, in, in layman's terms, what is happening, when things may happen. Um, it, is very, it feels 
as someone going through it, it feels very vague. You're not really sure. And this is so. This has impacts on businesses. So accredited businesses has impacts on on them. Um, mm. uh, but I think it's even more so when you are talking about employees because. Uh, a business may be able to make arrangements that an individual cannot make uh, as far as this is like. This is putting food on the table. Um, so it, it was a very, and it still is, a very difficult situation and certainly not um, certainly not all wrapped up yet. Uh, I believe they have 15 days to execute the docker. So we should know more there. So let, let's see. There's still time for, for everything to come to light for us all. Again, we still don't know. You know, it, it was voted, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the repercussions of that. But we still, until it's actually signed and executed, we still don't have timeframes and and things like that. You know, it's almost given the shareholders vote to go ahead to the next stage for the for the parties involved. Um, just on your point of, you know, again, I've been fairly critical of the administrators' communication because they're framing it very legalistically as they have to. And, you know, I take your point about having a HR function to explain it to both deal with some of the less um, sophisticated businesses that are creditors because there are a lot of business and you know I would put myself in that business very small you know any business that I'm a creditor to in that position I have to rely on my own understanding we don't have a team of lawyers and accountants to, to go to and it's an expensive process to, to get that advice but then you've got employees who are directly affected um, that are also you know um, I would put unsophisticated in the terms of the of, of the law but when you one of the things that I've found absolutely gobsmacking is the cost of administration to a business that already doesn't have any money, um, and I, I I think uh, and I I don't have the document in front of me, but the creditors one of the things that creditors had to vote on um, was the administrators' fees, which one of the arguments they had for the deed of company arrangement was because it meant less cost accruing to them for winding up the company um, because they are a cost on on a business that has already lost money and in the you know if it's going to lose money they are going to lose you know they are going to increase the costs so to actually have to put on an another another staff member and i think the administrators the the partners in in the administrators firm get paid six or seven hundred dollars an hour you know so Last week, when they had two partners and presumably an accounting person there, um, you know, you're looking at two thousand dollars for the hour-long meeting and for everything that they do, every phone call they make, um, and even the admin assistant um, is getting paid one hundred and fifty dollars an hour. When you look at the breakdown of fees, the people who benefit from this, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong um, in, in it, but it's a costly process, and they have to be paid as professional firms. So to have an additional role come in just to um, explain it to the people who are affected is going to significantly add, I would imagine, to the costs there. So who whose role is it to look after? You, know, you, you, you stepped in and asked these questions for your friends and colleagues, as you said, because they were part of your team when you were the brewer there. But that was something that you took on. You know, there is no industry body to represent the interests of people in the industry because as we've, you know, sort of talked about, the Independent Brewers Association is essentially 
the breweries association so it's almost management not employees that's that's right and that's no criticism of the iba it's just the the, the mere fact certainly not um that's not really the iba's uh role what they've set up to do they're an association to look after breweries um uh, which is something we should all be supporting um as as workers and as brewery um industry professionals um because that's advancement on for our for our trade but there was no one really to turn to um it was 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 very difficult um to be able to get that advice you know luckily there you know the uh, fair work um is there for all, all australians um to be able to to reach out and that's their their job to be making sure that everything's done uh properly but um as far as having a a, a guiding voice that's there to come in you know yeah like i said it would be great but as you said, it it would add to that cost, which is um, quite large. But that's what these things cost. That's to be no criticism of the administrators. That's a very um, complex job that they they do, and it probably it's not in their interest in, uh, to have someone doing that. And it wouldn't be in the interest of the workers to have someone from that company doing that. But it would be good to have um, uh, something, someone independent that's able to to take that on and to 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 speak with the workers and explain to them where they stand mm. and what their position is and what they can do from here. So as you know, there are work uh, multiple times has been reached out through independent legal advice but this is a cost to the um, workers and you're talking about the administration's significant cost to the bottom line of the business and um, Mm. what that means for the docker but this is a significant cost to the workers uh, to just receive the money they should be paid yep um and that they should there should just be no ambiguity about um so that's I, I find that a concerning thing and that's not to be a criticism on necessarily on this this is just on the system a note on the system and what i've what i've observed through through my experience with this as a note on the system again i don't just base it on this one uh, administration because it's something that you know having tried to wade through numerous um administrations and liquidations it it, it seems universal um you know it they they are highly legalistic and hard to penetrate, and then also, you know, you get a lot of that on this hand and then on this hand, um, which because the advice needs to come from the person representing one group's interests, you know, and and the administrators don't represent the creditors; they represent the company. Is my understanding? Yeah, no, they, no, they no, act they, for the company. They act for the company, but um, they act as the company, but they're meant to mm. act. Um, in the interests or the best interests of the creditors as their yeah. as their first standing. That's the way I, I believe that it's was explained to me, is that they they have mm. to look out for the the first and the best interest of the creditors over the company itself, even though they are effectively the company for that period. Mm. But again, like a workforce ombudsman or a Fair Work Australia, I, I think some independent body, yeah, again, just providing consistency for, for staff. Um because administrators are only going to take more money out of the process, which reduces the outcome for um, all creditors. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And we have to remember too that the role of the administrators, this is an incredibly technical role and it really is, um, uh, I don't know, could you describe it as forensic accounting um, with going through there, piecing what's happened, uh, piecing back what's happened to the business over the last X period since it was last um 
in a stable financial position and then seeing what's available now and what they can do with that. And it's a pretty limited time frame. Like to a to an employee that's owed money, it feels like a bloody long time. Like this is like an eternity to be waiting for money. But really five weeks, six weeks, when you're piecing together all this information um, mm. and trying to put a new plan forward, that's not much time. That would just, from their perspective, that would just disappear so quick. Um, so being uh, fuzzy warm um, on the HR front in explaining there is probably not really their highest priority and I, <laughs> probably, I, can, yeah. I can understand that because I can just imagine um, – what they've got to wade through in order to be able to figure everything out. But again, like, you know, particularly with this one, I think there was a little bit of um, mouthing off in, in, in the early stages of this um, and, you know, by people who possibly should have known better. Um, but they are complicated and they're, you know, taking populist uh, poses or posturing doesn't help anybody um, when there is a process to be gone through that is highly technical and uh, very complicated and the facts aren't in, you know, within days of an administration occurring. No, and, like, the the level of complexity over who's owed what, um, when you look at priority um, creditors, when you look at secured creditors, when you look at non-secured creditors, when you look at the breakdown um, of the shareholdings and what that's going to re- represent going forth. Um, yeah, really, really complex, um, really complicated. And, you know, yeah, as a layperson, which essentially all of us are, um, and when you're in that stress of that, of um, mm. thinking, how am I paying the rent next week? How am I paying, how am I putting food on the table? How am I getting fuel in the car to get the kids to school? Um it just compounds, um, and what I tried to say to my fellow teammates when we were, were talking about it is like, let's be a, uh, well, the old uh, alert but not alarmed type thing. You know, let's let's be alert, let's look into this, let's not panic yet, but let's but let's be wise and um, and you know be be cautious and be wise and really look into this and make sure that we do get everyone gets what they truly rightfully deserve. Um, but it is really wearing down, really, really wearing on the staff. Um, just sick of, mm. They just want their money and they just want to get on with life. But at the same time, there is no way to expedite that. You know, as unfair and as unhappy a process as it is, it's very hard to expedite. That's true. Um, well, there is legal timeframes on, on certain things that they just have to do. Um and one of the questions um, that I asked about once the docker had passed was about the timeframes for uh, staff getting their, their entitlements uh, and for creditors paid out, but particularly in the thought of the, the staff. Uh, they gave assurances that they were going to um, act as swiftly as possible on it. Um, there was some numbers given to me in days, which I can't remember straight off the top of my head. I'd have taken some notes down. Um, and it was, I thought, that time period that they said they sat did sound reasonable to me because it's not like they could get it and then on the Monday, you know, deal it out. We know what banks are like, you know, with transferring large amounts of money. Um, that's not going to happen straight away. And they would have processes that they've got to go to. But what they said at the time to me sounded a, re- a reasonable um, period for them to be able to disperse to to the staff. So moving on from the actual administration, the the, the news that emerged uh, beforehand was that it was a consortium involving Brisbane's catchment brewing. Um, 
that has uh, stepped in. Uh, but Catchman are following you round. Uh, as we talked last week, uh, you were involved uh, in the Fortitude Brewing Company that Catchman acquired again after you left, and now they've stepped in. Um, full disclosure: I have a bit of, a, I have a fondness for the Catchman brand. You know, I was asked, you know, I, I um, was involved in a very tangential way in the early days of, of the Catchman brand, and I know some of the um, uh, people involved. Um, I've got no interest in it, but you know, I've sort of watched it, and it's it's been fascinating to watch the way that that business has evolved um, and some of the you know, personalities that have come into it. Um, it. I think it's fair to say that they've never set the world on fire, um, although they have apparently been slowly building their way towards profitability um, and seem to be going the way that Ballistic was going in the first place by growing through acquisitions, um, whether they're good acquisitions or not. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, they. Uh, I was uh, one of the people that founded um, Fortitude Brewing. Um, that was ten years ago this year. Um, well, end of twenty uh, twelve, I think it was. Um, we launched in Noisy Miner. Launched on the twenty third of March, uh, twenty thirteen, and um, Fortitude launched in the fifth ish of May, twenty thirteen. Um, yeah, they acquired that. Last year, they've got um, a, a catchment brewing itself in West End. Um, they have, uh, what's it called, Darling & Co? In, um, Darling & Co, which is just a leasehold pub in Paddington. Yep, and now they've got um, Ballistic. Now, I'm not really sure. I would assume that's that entire. So with the Ballistic Beer Co, there was other companies that weren't in administration, but they were owned by Ballistic Beer Co. So I would imagine they would then come into the catchment. They weren't. My understanding, well, there was a ballistic group, but they were separate companies and they weren't in administration. So Yeah, that's one of them. Even that, I don't know what the, the position is, whether they're going to be sold, um, and but they weren't directly affected by the administration is, is my understanding. Yeah, that, we'll, we'll have to see what, what comes out from them. There's also the question of ballistic Springfield too because it was um, its uh, creditors meeting, which was dependent on the Ballistic Beer Co., um, creditors meeting was to be straight after um, the Ballistic Beer Co. one. I don't know what happened with that. That's um, uh, wasn't in my my scope. I wasn't an employee of directly an employee of of there. But so yeah, they they'll have if if we're assuming that they all come in now under this um, one group. That's quite a range of venues they've got and quite a range of of. Um, Sales points and yeah, which was sort of ballistics thing there for a while was growth through, through that. Um, however, it doesn't mean that that's really the same path that um, the catchment group will take with it. So ballistic was doing a fair amount of wholesale trade as well and was um, nationally ranged. Um, we'll see what their strategy is going forward with that. They might want to wind back on that and might just concentrate um, on utilising ballistics production facilities to distribute beer out across through their their venues or they may still keep all the same strategy or they may um, wind some of it back. We'll have to have to wait and see. So just because it's um, more more venues um, doesn't mean it really is necessarily going to be the way that they're going to be doing exactly the same path as Ballistic. Watch this space. Right. Look, I, I think uh, half an hour in, we can probably move on to the next story. Um, but there is a lot, you know, again, there, there is a lot to... I mean, ballistic is the one that we looked at, but 
the whole issue of employees and administration is something that I, it's not the first and it's certainly not going to be the last, which is why giving it a little bit of focus is probably uh, you know, well worth doing. But as somebody else who's been getting a little bit of attention recently, Better Beer seeks $20 million to fund expansion. Uh, Better Beer is looking to raise $20 million in investment to fund the next stage of its growth. The rapidly rising beer brand this week appointed investment and advisory firm Jarden Group to manage the raise. Brand co-founder Nick Cogger said the company had no set valuation to take to market, but was looking to test its value through the process. Cogger said he was going to market rather, rather than seeking additional investment from Mightycraft, given the size of the raise. Mightycraft might invest in the round. However, we are looking for 20 million, so we need to increase our investor base, he explained. Um, and I I might throw in there that Mightycraft for you know their initial investment in Torquay Beverages, which in turn funded better beer, was only $250,000. So $20 million is probably a little bit more than they can raise. Um, Cogger said that while the possible sale of up to 10% would see the founders share diluted, he felt the benefits would outweigh that. We'll get diluted slightly if we're raising around $20 million, but that additional capital is going to make the business worth double or triple what it is today. Cogger said the brand used the celebrity owners for less than a quarter of its marketing activities and was looking to outgrow them further with the money going towards finding what he described as harder to acquire uh, customers, which are the ones who probably aren't already in the um, Inspired Unemployed's orbit, um, and the money was going to go to a significantly increased marketing spend, um, which again seems to be the way to grow, uh, to take brands to the next level, involves a fairly expensive marketing spend. Um, Ian, any thoughts on that? Yeah, wow, this is pretty. Um, uh, I don't know if aggressive is the the right term, or even am, am, maybe it's ambitious. I'm not. I'm not really sure. Um, but certainly, twenty million is a, a pretty decent capital raise. I believe a large portion of that was it was really just to target in the the marketing, wasn't it? Because there's no um, uh, bricks and mortar being done, which certainly for twenty million dollars, you're you're not going to go all the way to, to building a brewery. If there. you can spend that on advertising and and not get a meaningful bump in sales, and there's a problem, and that's and 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 to me that's the thing. You know, better be a you know dismiss it all you want. Um, and, and, and in a lot of quarters it is. The thing that I find interesting about this is, you know, 20 years into the craft beer revolution, um, the only craft brand that we saw get anywhere near this volume um, uh, uh, was Stone and Wood. Um, I believe Young Henry's might be over 10 million litres. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but, you know, this is a brand that in 18 months has gone from zero to a million litres a month um, and 12 million litres. And that's just on, you know, the, the support through Dan Murphy's and the popularity of the influencers. Um, and I would argue that the brand transcends even that group. So, you know, it's 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 a fascinating case study in brand. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They've just hit the nail on the head with so many things about it. I don't think we can all give it all the credit to the Inspired Unemployed. Like, that certainly was their their kickstart to it, but everything about how they positioned it, what they made the product, um, which actually I still haven't tasted yet. Uh, uh, might have to do something about that one day. Um, has has been right on. It's just hit the sweet, the sweet spot. Um, now, with that $20 million, I wouldn't imagine that's all just directly a marketing spend. They're probably building their that, – that marketing spend and could also be seen as like building their marketing team or building their sales networks um, and so forth. But 
yeah, essentially it's all to help them sell more beer, not necessarily to produce more beer. Well, that's the thing. So there's, and again, this is where it's complicated because of the ownership. And I'll note that we haven't done the story yet because I think there might be more to come. And you certainly don't want to overdo the uh, Mighty Craft, um, you know, coverage uh, for a variety of reasons. But Mighty Craft, subsequent to this announcement, uh, announced that they were restructuring their ownership in Torquay Beverages. So Torquay Beverages is going to be renamed Better Beer Holding Holdings. Um, Matt and Jack, the inspired unemployed, step up their ownership because they've hit the ten million. Apparently, in the initial discussions, if the brand hit ten million, they got a higher percentage of ownership. So that brings uh, Mighty Crafts down to thirty three percent. But the both through this capital raise and um, this new structure, Mighty Craft are certainly banging the drum um, because. Uh, you know, on, on, on valuation because Mighty Craft, um, which I think the shares were once as high as 50 cents a share, is down to 18 and a half cents a share, um, giving it a market cap of 58.39 million. Now, if this 10, if, if, if they get $20 million on a 10% share, um, that values better beer at 20 at 200 million dollars and they've got a 30 percent share of that 200 million dollar company um so you know that's what uh 65 million um just on their better beer share alone but then they've got the you know i I don't think their craft breweries are necessarily worth anything appreciable but they do have a substantial whiskey holding so you know, it, it, I, I think Better Beer, is, uh, Mighty Craft is certainly banging the Better Beer drum and will be hoping hoping for a uh, high valuation because that should send their um, share price up and they and they absolutely need it. Yeah, well, the, uh, hang on. If I'm reading this right, thinking this right, it means that their value just on one of their holdings is worth more than what their market cap is. Yes, yeah, yeah, 100%. Sorry, that, that's the simple way of doing it, yeah. You know, as a, as a, as a punter, sorry, investor, um, you thought that um, something was going to happen, and and during this that um, Better Beer was going to be sold. It possibly could be a good time to buy Mighty Craft shares. Correct. Now they were talking up at their last um, shareholder briefing, which was their H one results that we covered a couple of weeks ago. Andrew Syme, the chief financial officer, you know, did a metric that. Um, you know, sales com- comparable sales in the industry go on twenty to twenty five dollars a litre um, for annual production. Citing breweries like Stone and Wood, Stone and Wood was significantly above that. Um, if the five hundred million dollar sale figure um, is is correct, but at ten million litres, that values a rapidly growing brand at two hundred fifty million dollars. Um, so you know, if they raise twenty million, it would be on less than ten percent. So uh, on, on those metrics, yeah, um, the mighty craft is undervalued. Um, but you know, particularly when you factor in their their whiskey holdings and uh, you know a few other things, you know, the the, the value of their meter. Uh, they're million litre um, a year breweries like Jetty Road or um, Mismatch. You know, what, what are they worth? Because they're not growing quickly, but a, a rapidly growing brand at scale, certainly in, 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 in an emerging category um, that neither of the big two players have a significant toehold in yet, um, would certainly seem to be something that would be have value. Yeah. 
Yeah, interesting to think about the way that those valuations have come up. But I think we've discussed discussed that many times um, before, and also to just the very nature of how things are valued on the uh, what share prices are and what that makes the valuation of the company look like. I find um, I find that pretty fascinating and kind of frustrating and um, exasperating all at the same time. Well, and that's to be compared with, you know, uh, Gage Road. So Gage Road uh, is selling at $0.54, cents, um, but you know, the, the share price, but with a market cap of $73.79 million, which is quite low. I mean, that's almost – that's less than half what it was 18 months ago. Um, and yet they've been, on one hand, fairly bullish about their their results. They announced a very – loud um you know our our volumes have doubled, doubled our revenues have doubled but at the same time there when you take out their the cash flow that came from their new huge brewery um you know new huge venue um that was cash flow positive the balance sheet looked a little bit dire and i understand that they've uh, laid off some staff uh, recently i haven't been able to confirm that but you know Brewery valuation seventy three point seven nine million for a brewery that's uh, you know making I think eight million of its own seven to eight million of its own branded volume, but then volume for others um, exceeding that. You know, valuations are a very very complex things, and it comes down to share market and shareholder sentiment. Yeah, and what someone's willing to pay for something. You know, it's like anything. If we look at uh, look at something differently, find something. You know, some collectible figure someone's got and say, oh, it's worth $500 on eBay, but it's only worth $500 on eBay if someone's willing to pay $500 for it. Exactly, and that's where Better Beer particularly would seem to be a desirable asset because not only is it a brand, as I said, a brand at scale, but it's growing. It's rapidly growing and it's in an emerging category. Um, So it it seems to be the things would be quite desirable as opposed to, you know, $25, $30 25 30 million dollars for a craft brewery that's at a million liters um, that isn't even if it's growing isn't growing at uh, um, you know at, at a substantial pace um, which would add to its sale price in terms of the attract its attraction to other purchases there's also with things like that as well Matt looking at um Profitability, um, margin, mm. and scale on from there. So you might have something that's on paper worth $200 million and um, is scalable up from there, but you're going to have really low margin um, and big risk with that. But then you might have a venue that's uh, cap- a brew that's capable of producing a million litres a year, currently does that, but has a, you know, a kick-ass venue with it that generates significant cash flow uh, into it, so whilst it doesn't have the ultimate, um, may not have the ultimate scope of growth as a viable business, it's actually worth a fair bit of money. Maybe not twenty five million, but still, um, it does have significant value to it. That's what I find, you know, fascinating about valuations because that's where you know growth and scale, scalability come in. So if you've got a million a million liters. And most of it's through a high value sales at your own venue. That's a much hard, you know, scaling a venue is much harder and keep it, keeping, you know, that um, the, the, the feel and the thing that people love about it in scaling a venue or even taking that venue and replicating it elsewhere 
is much harder than if you've got a brand like um, Better Beer that has national scale through you know all of the Dan Murphy's retail points and seems to be finding uh, you know volume maybe lower margin but um, you know higher scalability than selling in, in 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 your own. I would argue that if you were buying a venue that's profitable. You're essentially buying yourself an income as opposed to a growth potential because of the challenges of scaling. Whereas if you're buying a brand that's at 10 million liters and growing at 15, 20, 30, I mean, we don't really know how quickly Better Beer is actually growing because it's gone from zero to 12 million liters in 18 months. Um, so it's still in that blast off phase that has to slow down at some stage. But what its sustainable growth is, we don't know. And with a huge capital injection behind marketing, they might be able to keep that sort of growth rate um, or you know, see it not diminish significantly for another year or two, um, which I, I've, I've seen subsequent media comment that they're hoping to take it to a 50 million litre um, brand, which is, you know, that's a serious volume. Oh, absolutely it is. Um, but like what you're saying there about um, uh, scale and size and, and profit small versus large, I suppose it's a little bit like the old shares portfolio thing of are you looking for growth or are you looking for return? Um, yep. They can be two different um, two different things and I certainly don't have a share portfolio, but friends that do talking about that, about growth and, and, and actual dividend return um, can be two different two different things. Well, yeah, I listen to a lot of um, investing podcasts and God knows why, because <laughs> I don't have any money to actually invest. But I just find it, I, again, like a lot of things about the brewing industry, I just sort of find int- intellectually interesting. Um, moving on to third story, we've done pretty well for uh, in filling time because of the complexity of the stories we're covering. And this one's no different. A product recall, counterculture Erin Irish Cream Stout. Huge surprise anytime you see uh, Stone and Wood, um, you know, recalling a, a beer. In this case, it was a labelling issue, not a production issue. Um, the product had been on sale nationally in bottle shops and retail outlets in New South Wales, Victoria, and Queensland, uh, and IGAs in Victoria. The recall is due to the presence of an undeclared allergen, milk. Now, the interesting thing about this is that it was called an Irish cream stout. Now, as as people have commented, if my Irish cream stout doesn't have milk in it, I'm going to be a little bit disappointed. Um, but <laughs> this is, well, you know, it, it is sort of there on the label. But this is where the complexity of food, sta- food standards and labelling comes in because milk is a declared allergen um, and... As we were dig- and as um, a number of people, when we posted it on the Radio Brews News Group, um, commented, "Well, we make a stout that has lactose in, but we don't have to declare it because it's not a declared allergen." And so we've been, you know, trying to get to the bottom of this. Um, I'm going to read out. So we, we, we went to food standards. Um, we, we, we spoke to Stonewood and we very reluctant to draw added attention to recalls because of the. I would say, irresponsible way the mainstream media has been covering food recalls um, to, to get clicks. Obviously, it's a, it's a general, we want to provide information, not um, hysteria. But food standards, we, we reached out to them because when if you look at their website, it says milk is, a, is an allergen. And I would have assumed, which you can't do in the law, that lactose 
um, falls within that. Um, but we went to food standards and, and the response that we got was Australia, New Zealand food standards code requires certain foods and ingredients, including milk, to be declared when present in food or beverage. New requirements to make to make declarations on food labels clearer and easier to find have been introduced. These changes include requirements to, for, de- de- for declaration font type and location on the label. Foods not required to replay a, re- display a statement of ingredients must still provide declarations on the label, such as in the summary statement using the required names. Food manufacturers have until 25th February 2024 to implement new requirements. More information can be found on the FSANS website. Now, when you look at the FSANS website, it was fairly unhelpful because it just says milk. And, you know, we went back to Stone and Wood because they did have Irish cream as an ingredient, but not lactose or milk. Um, and so, uh, you know, trying to understand what they did, um, it turns out that they used Irish cream essence for the flavour, but no actual Irish cream, which my understanding is whiskey and Irish whiskey infused cream like Bailey's. Um, and they didn't use dairy products at all. Besides the essence, we only added lactose for sweetness and body, which is what a lot of craft brewers will use. Um, but it sounds like there may have been a threshold question. Um, they used 40 grams per litre of lactose and food standards indicated that with that amount, it warranted a recall, not a withdrawal. Um, uh, and apparently food standards was very helpful to work with. Um, it's an allergy. And it's an allergen, so it's pretty black and white for them. It was simply human error, and we've definitely learned um, and confident that it won't happen again. So, again, we've had to go back to food standards to find out whether, given that lactose isn't listed on food standards that we could see, but milk was, is there a threshold? Um, and it, you know, is it? 15 grams per litre is it 20 grams or is it 40 grams a litre no one's been able to tell but this certainly highlights um you know when you look at the legalese that we got back from food food standards and i'll pub we're going to publish an article with all of this so we'll link to this in the um eventual show notes it is complicated so ian does does any of that mean anything to you were you aware of any contrary or does this just make it confusing for you as well this just keeps adding to the um, to the confusion and um, why it's always better to be safe than sorry um, in these scenarios and why it's another example of when we're talking about the potential labelling changes that um, some quarters are proposing coming forward, why things can get even, um, even more complicated uh, when we're talking mm. about um, the breakdown of nutritional panels and, and so forth. Going by the, the sounds of that, there Stonewood probably just were probably went to an extent that they may not have need to. Is, is am I correct in that interpretation, Matt? From what you just said, the comment that we had is we had forty grams per liter of lactose, and F Sands indicated that with that amount, it warranted a recall, not a withdrawal. Which I, I think a withdrawal from market. So the difference between a recall and withdrawal is an interesting question. You know, it's more a case if they hadn't declared a potential allergen seems to be the uh, the, the, the the problem. Yeah, and if a company that's as, as uh, seemingly well run as Stone and Wooden with as much resources um, as they do can oversight something like this, it can happen to um, to to any one of us, I think. But again, this is another example where you know 
we're covering it. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of media have covered the withdrawal. We've ended uh, not sort of celebrating Bruce News, but our readers posted questions um, as a result of a story that we did. Um, so, you know, again, potentially an industry body thing. Stonewood's not a member of the IBA, so you know, maybe it didn't trigger it, but a lot of the people who were potentially affected by this are. So we're investing time in trying to get as clear a an answer as we can for a lot of small breweries that, you know, don't have the time um, to, to do this but may be affected, um, you know, and, and we want to, you know, when you look at how cumbersome the language is, you know, as it always is through bodies like ASIC, where they can't provide a blanket answer because there is nuance in in facts, but we're, we're just trying to say, well, this is the situation. And if you're a brewery that puts lactose in your beers, you may want to be very, very clear. Yeah, particularly if they've given a number there for where that stands, I'm sure there's – so what's 40 grams per litre? That's about 4%, which may actually – no, actually, I won't go down that path. I was going to uh, question the type of sugar that um, um, that lactose is because there is um, laws regarding that, um, residual sugars and, and types of sugars um, in Australia. That's a, that, that's a separate <laughs> – residual sugars or added back-sweetened beers which have excise implications, I that's believe. That's right, yeah. So there's um, – you know, whether you've got monosaccharides and, and uh, polysaccharides, um, yeah, I'll, I might have a look at lactose. But, but that hits the note there, and that's the point I was trying to make, is that the industry is increasingly complicated, the information needs of brewers – you know these things are very technical, and we you know, on on a podcast like this that tries to be fairly fact based uh, because there are repercussions when we're not. We have to you know make sure that we have clarity. Yeah, so uh, I've just actually checked. Um, uh, lactose is a disaccharide, um, which means it's made up of two sugar molecules um, or monosaccharides. Um, uh, Australian law with that. I believe that that would put it on the cusp of what you're allowed to do uh, by Australian law. I think monosaccharides, disaccharides, you're allowed up to 4% residual um, in beer. It was done as a way to prevent people from making artificially back-sweetened products. You're also not allowed to add any artificial sweeteners, and by an artificial sweetener, um, it doesn't mean that it's not a naturally occurring product, um, but something that's used just for the sake of of sweetening. So they would have done that based upon making sure that they complied with Australian taxation law for what is defining beer, but then that's brought another hiccup in um, as to at that amount there it has to be has to be declared so brewers go out and check your 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 your, your lactose your ice cream stout um, your uh, uh, milkshake IPA, milkshake IPA, IPA. recipes <laughs> um, and have a look into that because um, there's probably something we could all all learn from there and probably deep, dig into a little bit deeper and um, see what we come up with it's a complicated and interesting industry. I'll just say that. And it's increasingly hard to keep up with uh, everything that's happening. Yes, um, indeed. So, how, so on that, how sad? If you, if you like the service that we provide, and let's face it, you know, we, we don't get paid for doing this uh, uh, research, um, but if you benefit from it, if you work for a brewery, maybe find out whether you've got a, a subscription to Brews News um, because if you benefit from it, 
that's how we cover the cost of doing it. Absolutely. Um, so I, I do know from my good friends with Stone and Wood and then through Rocky My Partner working for Craft Wine Store, um, callbacks on the product um, and what they were going to do from here and having to relabel um, the, the the product, which by hand was, you know, be a really labour-intensive way to go and put mm. lots of little stickers on there saying contains lactose. So, but probably if I was the person having to make that call at Stone and Wood and what we're going to do from there, um, I would be looking for an easy solution for when I had to modify the label on on my <laughs> beer. So, uh, Matt, would would you have any ideas of what would be an easy solution for what we could what you could do if you um if you needed to change the label of your beer? Mate, my very first thought in any situation like this is to give Rallings label stickers and packaging a call because they are versatile and they're responsive. And in situations like this, you need a company that is able to respond to your needs uh, for all of your labelling needs uh, at the you know easiest and uh, most efficient way. So if you have any labelling needs, give our good friends at Rallings label stickers and packaging a call on one three hundred eight five two two three five. Now, if like me, you don't have a na- you don't have a memory for numbers, you don't need to because it's in your show notes, and you'll be able to give them a call, or you'll be able to email them at the easiest of all e- addresses to remember: sales at rallingsprint.com.au, and they can help make your brand sing. Uh, nicely done, and I. Even I didn't know where you were going with that. It was beautifully done. <laughs> oh, mate, Congratulations. I, 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 I thought I was waiting. I thought, oh, you're going to lead into this one here, surely. Um, but no, he's not. I'll, I'll grab it and run. <laughs> Thank you for that. I was actually looking at, because uh, we do have a brewery of the week, but I'm, I'm actually going to wrap in our Bluestone Brewery of the Week uh, um, with a letter that we received this week and uh, so we will have a gift so Mick McCann if you are listening you sent us an email um, I, I believe it must have gone straight to the producer because I haven't seen it yet so I'm reading this blind but Mick McCann if you're listening email me at matt at bruisenews.com.au and we will get a, uh, a, a letter of the week present to you um, but Bluestone Yeast can supply a present to brewers because they can supply Pitches of yeast from 1 litre to 100 litres at greater than 2 billion cells per milliliter. Whether you're after a one-off pitch or you're looking for weekly, fortnightly or monthly deliveries of yeast, Bluestone Yeast has got you covered. You can reach out to them at info at bluestoneyeast.com.au or call Derek on 03-8518-3172 and talk all things yeast. I'll be catching up with Derek at the uh, IBD conference in Adelaide the week after next and uh, I'm very much looking forward to that. But the reason I said that the letter of the week and the brewery of the week can be uh, woven together is Mick wrote just wanted to jump in and let you know that I love what you were doing in and around the brewing industry thank you very much Um, that's not why I'm reading this out I listen to the podcast each week as I drive back to Sydney and love the insight that I get into the pulse of the brewing industry and I'm walking I wonder whether we should be saying he's working towards his exit strategy out of teaching by opening a small brewery. Hopefully, I haven't dobbed him into his current employers. Uh, But never doing a capital raise, uh, just want to produce quality beers. Currently working through a grad certificate in brewing from Federation Uni. I'm hoping to start at the bottom and work up my knowledge so I'm producing consistent quality beers. I had a spare five minutes today to jump on the new website and wow, huge work getting this all sorted. Way better, super clean and professional feel. It flows and reads really well. Thank you very much. So yeah, hopefully uh, everyone else is enjoying um, Sabrina's work. I can't claim any credit whatsoever on that. But we get to the reason why this is the Bluestone Brewery of the Week. 
Brewery of the Week suggestions. Shark Island, Sunday Road and Hairy Man, all in the Sutherland Shire and producing amazing beers. Uh, looking forward to listening and following along with the hard work you are all doing. Uh, so there you go. A listener suggestion for three breweries of the week, and uh, it sounds like there might be a little Sutherland Shire brewery trail that we can uh, recommend people, and I'll certainly be looking at doing those. They're three breweries that I haven't been to, but we take a mixer recommendation as our Bluestone Breweries of the Week. Mate, anything else for you that you want to throw in? We're, we're doing pretty well for time. Yeah, um, uh, the beer is a conversation this week. Matt is um, really interesting. I'm 95% of the way through that uh, listening today and really, uh, really enjoyed it, um, getting a perspective on Balta from someone I knew uh, very little about. Um, and, yeah, it, it um, yeah, I'm really, really enjoying that one, really enjoying his story and what he's been through and, and how he how he really kicked off, off Balta. Yeah, and it was an interesting, like, as I said, go and listen to it if you haven't already. It was a really good story. I heard him speak at a sportsman's breakfast, and they're, they're, they're normally a rugby player telling worries of, you know, getting drunk and the fights that he had and stuff like this, whereas this, hearing Bede tell his story, it was insightful and it was humble and it was, you know, very uh, witty, you know, telling his, his story, but... It also gave a lot of insight into what I saw, you know, as an observer of Bolter. The Bolter was never a celebrity vehicle to just get into the brewing industry. There was always that little bit more to it. And, you know, I, 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 that was something that um, I wanted to, to probe a little bit more, having heard Bede's story and dig a little bit into it. So it was one that, you know, it, it, it's not just a chat with, a, you know, inverted commas, famous person. It really was trying to see whether you know, the personality of the people behind it. And I have had the um, pleasure of meeting people like Mick Fanning and uh, Josh Kerr and um, uh, Joel Parkinson. And they all were were interesting, not just your classic, we've got a, a fame platform that, you know, let's knock out a beer. Um, they went looking for the right people. And, you know, I think people like Ant McDonald and Sterling Howland and Scott Hargraves, you know, they chose the people that went on to make the brand. And uh, so, yeah, so I'm, look, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it because it was, on one hand, it was a, a very selfish conversation I was having that I wanted to have not for an audience, but I hopefully it translated into a great listen for, for, for our audience. And, you know, they, they may not learn a huge amount about brewing, but they will sort of sort of learn a lot about the, the the personality and the character that can can inhabit a good brand. The thing that I I really liked hearing, uh, this is a little bit of a spoiler alert for for anyone out there, was um, how one of the world's uh, top surfers, um, someone that uh, coaches surfing to Olympic level, works on the packaging line. That's awesome. You know, they're not just passive in yep. the background. He's he's in there because he said he wanted to do stuff. Um, that's really cool. I, I, I really like the sound of that. Um, if you think that they're just um, uh, funders and brand names out there, they're actually there on the line doing the work. Yeah, and, you know, even though they've sold the business, um, and, and I, I don't know what their earnout was or how many years it was, I believe it's, you know, target-based, um, but working on the packaging line <laughs> doesn't move units. It literally moves units, <laughs> you know, like it, it sort of gets units out the door, which, yeah. Um, but anyway, go listen to it. So uh, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you enjoyed it because I, I, I very much did as well. 
Um, and on that note, that's another week of news. Your hosts have been me, uh, Matt Kirkegaard and Ian Watson. Uh, next week, you'll be listening to the dulcet tones of Sabrina Kunz again. Um, Ian, uh, I, I think you're back. Um, I'll be back. I will be in Adelaide, so I'm not sure whether I'll be joining in or whether there'll be a um, TBA third party. Um, but thank you for another uh, week of insights, Ian, um, particularly uh, around ballistic. The show is produced by Vivian Topalovich and edited by Joanne Helder. We thank Rallings, Label Stickers and Packaging and Bluestone Yeast for their support in making this episode possible. And thank you all for your contributions by email, text, phone or in the Radio Brews News Group. Don't forget... And there should be a link to our ability to leave a voice recording. I haven't seen any of those yet, um, but we'll make sure there's a link in the show notes if you'd like to record a um, quick audio that we can play on the podcast. And uh, until next week, we're out. <laughs>